The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 2022 is the History Extra podcast's 15th birthday. So to mark 15 years of fascinating historical conversations, we've asked 15 historians to nominate a figure from history who they think deserves their 15 minutes of fame. Some are inspiring people who deserve more airtime today. Others are those whose significance in history has been overlooked, and some simply led fascinating and unexpected lives. In today's episode, Professor Michael Wood nominates St Hadrian of Canterbury. Speaking to Spencer Mizzen, he hails the achievements of this 7th century scholar, who helped turn early medieval England into a cultural powerhouse. Hi Michael, uh, thanks for joining us today. No, it's great to be with you. Now, this This conversation is the latest instalment of our 15 Minutes of Fame podcast series. And you, Michael, are going to be giving 15 Minutes of Fame to Hadrian, the 7th century North African scholar who did so much to transform learning in early medieval England. Now, Michael, I wonder if we could start by you just giving us a a, a brief overview of Hadrian's life story so we can get a real feel for for what he achieved in his life. Sure. Um... Hadrian is, you know, in terms of the people who deserve better mention in history, I think he's one of the most important in in British history. You know, the Venerable Bede, who's writing his great history of the English nation in the 8th century, says that this was the, the happiest time in the, 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 the English people's existence, you know. And Hadrian, I should preface his life by saying that he uh, he's indissolubly bound up with another guy called Theodore, Theodore of Tarsus, who was a, a Syrian Greek. The two of them came together to, to England in 669, 670, to really targeted by the Pope to bring Mediterranean learning to the English people. And the the really the end result of their teaching would their teaching would last for centuries you know people in the 10th century were saying you know that we still drink from the spring their springs you know they were uh, they were such extraordinary and exceptional teachers and uh, you know they've had very little 
attention in the history books over so many years. And I could have, of course, chosen many uh, figures from Anglo-Saxon England who, who deserve their 15 minutes of fame, but they're really interesting. And uh, and I'm particularly focusing on Hadrian because, you know, Bede says of him that he was a via de natione a fear. So, uh, and that's an extraordinarily interesting sentence, really, because he was a man of the African race. So although, you know, we we don't know for sure about Hadrian's background and origin, you know, we know that he came from North Africa, we know that he came from Libya, from what the Greeks called Karanaika, uh, which was the Greek-speaking part of North Africa. This was a, a Greek-speaking world with beautiful palaces, you know. Uh, the, the palace at Apollonia was excavated pretty recently, and you can see it on the Libyan coast with uh, you know, temples and uh, great buildings and palaces. And, and that's the world that, that Hadrian's coming from. And and at that point, of course, the Arab invasions begin and the whole of the Near East is inundated with the, the Arab armies. They moved out from Egypt into uh, this part of Libya in 642. And at that point, Hadrian was probably already a Christian priest. You know, the very long-standing Christian community in Libya, there still is a Coptic church in Benghazi. And he would have been in his 20s at that time. And at some point around there, so far as we can guess, his amazing journey begins. He he sails on the refugee route, which is still so uh, topical today, to southern Italy, as many people did from uh, from North Africa at that time. And he establishes himself in Naples. And Naples is a fantastic uh, centre of Latin culture and Greek culture particularly Greek culture uh, from the the 500s onwards. Many great writers were there and, uh, uh, you know, huge amount of literature produced. And and, and you see this filtered through to right across to Anglo-Saxon England. Naples is like the great transmission point by which the late learning, the late Roman learning of North Africa comes into Europe and eventually reaches Anglo-Saxon England and Wearmouth and Jarrow and all these places. So Hadrian establishes himself there. And he was obviously somebody of substance and of great learning and great multilingual learning. This is a really important thing. He's bilingual in Latin and Greek. And he becomes the abbot of a monastery in uh, a, a little island, which is Nisida, in the in the Bay of Naples, where there was a, a great villa that belonged to the famous Brutus, and I think probably the villa was what had was turned over to be monastic buildings, and he built up his uh, his credibility and his reputation in in Italy, probably through his linguistic skills. And it may be that he'd been used as a diplomat by the, the Pope in journeys to um, to Gaul. And, and it may be that he'd been used as a translator by the when the Byzantine emperor came on a visit to Italy in the 660s, you know. So he was a known person. And the next time we pick him up, uh, a later source says, that he was the head of the Schola, the school of the Greeks, in Rome. There's no other evidence to support this, but um, uh, he may still have been the abbot in Naples, but with all this background to him, he's in Rome. 
And at this point, far away in England, you know, the land of sticks and stones, where sticks and stones were still worshipped, according to Pope Gregory the Great. You know, only recently there'd been the conversion mission of the uh, St. Augustine to uh, to Canterbury in 597, you know. So this was recent history. Uh, it was still a very pagan land. A lot of the bishoprics have lapsed, and the Archbishopric of Canterbury became vacant. And the Pope amazingly says to Hadrian, I want you to go to Britain and to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, it's an unbelievable idea that this guy who calls himself a, a man of African nationality, you know, an African race, uh, you know, maybe he was Berber or Amazigh or a kind of half Greek, half native Libyan of the kind of people who've been acculturated over centuries in North Africa, you know. Um, he'd asked him to be Archbishop of Canterbury and... And Hadrian refused and suggested somebody else, and the other person refused. And then Hadrian suggested Theodore, who he obviously knew in Rome, who was um, a Greek-speaking, Syriac-speaking, Syrian-educated monk who'd been, um, you know, ed- educated in the great centres of Antioch and Edessa in in the the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, so he was an extraordinary character. But by then, Theodore was. 65-year-old, 66-year-old retired monk in a little monastery in a little shrine called Trefontane, just outside the southern walls of Rome, where there was a Syriac. So he was a lot older than Hadrian. He was a then. lot older. I'm, I'm guessing. We don't know Hadrian's age, but I'm guessing, you know, Hadrian was probably born around 620, so he's probably now in his 40s. Theodore was past retirement age and uh, when Hadrian suggested him as the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, and it's another totally incredible idea that for this benighted province in the far west they were suggesting this <laughs> greek and syriac speaking monk and this north african scholar from libya of, of african race theodore accepts the post but on condition that hadrian comes with him we guess at least for the initial settling in period if you like they obviously knew each other, you know. Remember, Hadrian had initially refused the job. It was probably he didn't want the stress and strain of being archbishop, you know. So they then accept and they and they go. How much of a culture shock do you think it would have been for the two of them arriving in England at that time? It's absolutely incredible. You know, they can't have spoken Old English, uh, although there were the opportunities in Rome with people like Benedict Biscop, and there was an, a, an English school, um, the Schola Anglorum. Uh, the, the, church, the local church is still called the Santa Spirito of the Saxons today on the, on the sign outside in the middle of Rome. So there would have been a, the opportunity for them to, to learn a bit of old English. And they must have had to do a crash course in all that in order to prepare themselves for what lay ahead. And the thing you have to remember in all this is that it's a targeted mission, that the initial conversion mission in 597 of St. Augustine had been on the most basic level. Baptism of the local royal families, um, you know, they're very, very basic books. They must have had Psalters and the Bible, of course, the New Testament, stuff like that. But these guys are going there to bring the learning of the whole Eastern Mediterranean world to... uh, uh, to Britain. 
still to come on the History Extra podcast. He, he was obviously a person of great curiosity, great linguistic skills, and he 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 saw something in this whole project that was um, fantastic for future generations. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, Michael, that, that kind of takes me on to my next question. I mean, why do you think Hadrian deserves his 15 minutes of fame? What did he achieve in his years in England that deserves recognition? OK, well, uh, I mean, Theodore, one thing one would say was that Theodore's age, you know, he was in his late 60s by then, they can't have imagined it would be a long-term appointment you know uh that he was an old man uh, and if age didn't get him then the climate would you know in britain and uh, astonishingly um theodore lasted another 20 years and hadrian 40 years he must have been in his 80s when he died in 709 or 710 and bead says that they went everywhere they did everything together uh, you know, we catch them in one church council up in the Annick, in the uh, up in the Northumbrian borderland. You know, they went everywhere. But the key thing was they established this great school in Canterbury, which became very, very famous. And Bede talks about there were, you know, some of the pupils could speak Greek and Greek and Latin as well as their own language. And and because of all the texts that they brought, um, they were initiating uh, the the sons of the the English nobility to, you know, the widest possible learning, not just biblical learning, but um, history and philosophy and, uh, you know, poetry. They even brought Syriac poetry incredibly to, to Britain. So, and what you can see, and this is one of the discoveries of the last few years, really, uh, is, is that their teachings were then spread not only over all England, but through old English missionaries who were going back to like convert the Germans, that their teachings spread everywhere. And now you find traces of them in manuscripts in Munich and Würzburg and Copenhagen and Reims and Paris. And, uh, and they, these are being discovered now. You know, people are suddenly wakening up to this fact. The key discovery was by the great... German paleographer Bernard Bischoff, who actually before the Second World War found the manuscript, but it wasn't published until the mid-1990s. And this was a manuscript in Milan, which contains very detailed uh, notes by the students in Canterbury of the teachings on biblical commentaries of Theodore and Hadrian. And what's so great about it is that it... it, uh, 
you see the students saying, well, Hadrian says this and Hadrian says that. And, you know, Hadrian mentions this bird called the Porphyrion, which the, the, the rulers of North Africa used to have uh, wandering around the gardens of their great palaces, you know. And, and you get little little notes, you know, the meanings of words. And, uh, you know, they're talking about the flora and fauna of the Near East, you know, Theodore describing the Euphrates. And, and uh, you know, one of the students clearly asked him what you're know, looking at a biblical text and they're saying well what is a melon <laughs> Theodore said, well, it's, it's, it's like a cucumber only much much bigger and in the city of Edessa which obviously he studied in you know the melons come so big that you can only carry two of them on one camel he's saying so these are the conversations that are going on in in Canterbury in the seventh century so Hadrian is riffing between Greek and Latin and Old English. Theodore even makes a joke, in, an Old Irish joke at one point. So what you see is, is they are the people who come to the British Isles, who go all over England, but obviously have relations with the other churches beyond as well. And they institute a, a form of teaching and a form of learning, form of biblical commentaries, of textual analysis, and they've brought their book satchels with them. So there's a mass of books that they've brought, um, some of which survive, either literally the actual text or copies. And so they are initiating uh, what is the first phase of civilization in England. And, and uh, it, it's the basis on which everything else is built over the centuries, you know, and that's why people look back 300 years later and said, you know, they're the starting point. There's a great manuscript in Leiden where, which says that um, it all started, looking at European learning, the pedigree of European learning, it all started with Theodore and Hadrian, and they instituted this, and then it takes you in a scholarly tree through their pupils and their pupils and Bede, and then through their pupils and Alcuin and so on to the great scholars of the Carolingian Renaissance, you know, uh, Smaragdus of San Michel and uh, uh, those kind of people, all the way through to the end of the 10th century when this text was written. And, and they are they're tracing the pedigree of European learning. And, and in the big picture, this is the story of how Europe uh, not only became Christian, but, but reintegrated the learning of the classical world into its own culture after the, the so-called Dark Ages, you know. Um, so I would say that this is the most important educational um, transformation in English culture, and really British culture, but English culture, uh, until Erasmus and Collett and everybody and the rise of the Tudor grammar schools in the 16th century, uh, and, and, and perhaps even more than that. But it's also an absolutely incredible story. You know, you, you, um, you can't believe it. And, the, and, of course, Hadrian, I imagine, I, well, I don't know, you know, B doesn't tell us, but I imagine he'd only agreed to, well, I'll come with you for a while, you know, I know the road. I've been to Frankia a few times. I'll come with you and see that you're established and we'll get the whole thing rolling and then I'll go back and I'll probably retire to my lovely island near Naples. But he became the abbot of St. Augustine's Monastery in Canterbury. That's where he's buried. Uh, he lived here for 40 years and um, I'm intrigued by him. 
But he must have he must have actually quite liked England by the sounds of it. If he stayed for forty years, he obviously wasn't he wasn't in a hurry to leave, was he? By the sounds of it, there's there's no other explanation for it. He 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 was obviously a person of great curiosity, great linguistic skills, and he 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 saw something in this whole project that was um, fantastic for future generations. And of course, it was under their aegis that Benedict Biscop founds the monastery at Monk Wearmouth and then King Edgefrith of Northumbria subsequently a few years later founds the monastery at at Jarrow you know and these are powerhouses of European culture uh, foundational moments in European culture because of course Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow they would transmit that learning back into Europe through their copying of these manuscripts, you know. So I'm I'm really intrigued by him. If I can add a personal note, I I was I knew a little bit about him when I started my doctoral research in Oxford, you know, very, very long time ago. Um and then one night I but I only knew a little bit about him, you know, because and then one night I was sitting in the Selden end of the Bodleian Library, and the Bodley's librarian, Richard Hunt, came over to me and there was hardly anybody left in the library it was like nine nine o'clock at night and he said what are you working on I said well I'm actually looking at you know 10th century and this that and the other and transmission of the manuscripts where they got the stuff from and he went over and he said look just look at this this has just come out and it was the supplementary volume to the great um, um, catalogue of Latin manuscript early Latin manuscripts by E.A. Lowe Codices Latini Antiquiores. And he turned the page to a British museum, uh, well, then British Museum, now British Library manuscript, um, a, a fragment of the letters of the North African saint Cyprian. And the letters were written in the 300s. Wow. It was one of the earliest manuscripts ever. The 300s in North Africa, probably in the scriptorium of the bishopric of St. Augustine of Hippo. And the whole transmission of those letters goes through English manuscripts, later English manuscripts. And this had been found, you know, the manuscript had been destroyed and folios of it had been used as, pasted in as the bindings to hold a later manuscript. And he said, I bet you Hadrian brought that. (laughs) <laughs> and and you think yes and uh, that's what over the years has intrigued me to sort of keep on just plugging away that was professor michael wood speaking to spencer mizen michael is a historian broadcaster and professor of public history at the university of manchester his best-selling book in search of the dark ages has recently been revised and republished by bbc books and is available now. If you're enjoying this series and would like early access to more episodes to hear more historians nominating people who deserve their 15 minutes of fame, go to historyextra.com forward slash 15 hyphen minutes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.